Well, that was a lovely Mother's Day scripture reading, wasn't it? <laughs> Who thought that one up? A naked, demon-possessed man chained in a graveyard with a bunch of filthy pigs. Good one, Curtis. And yet, what a poignant image of this Jesus who intentionally travels to the other side of the lake, to the people who couldn't be more different than him, who intentionally goes to a man like that to bring hope and healing and wholeness. It's this same Jesus that we hear from in Revelation 2 and 3, which we continue engaging in our series, Letters to the Church. It's this same Jesus who had been crucified and dead and buried, this same Jesus who was raised again to new life, the same Jesus who continues to lead and to guide his church by the power of his spirit. Now, preaching in the book of Revelation is not for the faint of heart. If you've ever read it, you know what I mean. You think the guy in Mark 5 was wild? Wait till you hear about the pregnant woman battling a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. One Bible teacher named Bill Creasy once put it this way. He said, understanding Revelation, though, is not all that difficult. You just have to understand the first 65 books of the Bible first. You see, flipping right to Revelation without proper understanding of what has come before it is like reading the final chapter in a book without first understanding the plot through the others. Now, we've read the letter to Ephesus, whose primary identity was political. We've read the letter to Smyrna, whose primary identity was commercial. And in Pergamum, which we turn our attention to today, in Pergamum, their primary identity was religious. They were passionate about the pursuit of truth. They were committed to engaging ideas. This is true. In the first century, Pergamum was home to a library with 200,000 volumes, all copied by scribes. Talk about hand cramps, am I right? And in an effort to maintain the library, they tried hiring the chief librarian from Alexandria. But that so enraged the Egyptian authorities, they jailed their own librarian so he couldn't leave. Maybe we could try that with D. I mean, apparently he's pretty comfortable with the blankets on the couch in the family room. I'm, Then the Egyptians were so upset at Pergamum that they cut off their supply of papyrus. This is true. And so Pergamum, because they were so committed to ideas, so committed to truth, they developed a new way of writing books. In Pergamum, they developed parchment for the very first time. In fact, that's where they get the name of the city. There's a, 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 a connection between Pergamum and the ancient word for parchment. But notice how Jesus describes the religious impulse, how he describes their quest for truth, how he describes their love of ideas. Jesus says this to the church in Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. Let's pause there for just a moment. 
Because in the other letters that we've read and will read, Jesus knows their deeds to to Ephesus and Thyatira, to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. He says, hey, I know what you did last summer, right? But to Pergamum, he says, I know where you live. Usually when we read the word live or dwell or exist in the Christian scriptures, it's the word peroikeo. Let me hear you say peroikeo. Peroikeo. It, it means to, uh, to live or dwell or exist, but, but remember that Greek words have a range of meaning. And in this range of meaning, peroikeo implies temporary residence. It's like when you're crashing on your buddy's couch because you haven't found your own apartment, right? That's peroikeo. Sure, now you are here, but as a stranger, as a sojourner, because your true home is in heaven. That's the word we usually read when we read live or dwell or exist in the New Testament. But to the church in Pergamum, Jesus does not use the word peroikeo. Jesus uses a different word. He uses the word katoikeo. Let me hear you say katoikeo. Katoikeo. You can hear some of it's very similar, but there's a different first three letters. Again, translated live, dwell, exist, but the range of meaning implies not a temporary residence, not sleeping on your buddy's couch. Katoikeo implies residence in a permanent, settled place. It's when you make that down payment and buy that new house, as if anybody could do that right now, right? Jesus says, I know where you katoikeo, where Satan has his throne by continuing to live there, by not trying to escape, by not packing your bags and leaving it behind for some easier place to be a Christian. Jesus says, in Pergamum you are, and in Pergamum you are to remain. How easy it is to look for or to long for another easier place to live out our faith. This is true. The very moment that I was writing these words on Thursday morning, I received a text message from a former member of our church who's moved out of state. And he sent me a text message inviting me, no, encouraging me to buy his neighbor's house, which was going up for sale. How many of us receive regular messages like that? (laughs) Get out of California! Leave it behind. It's not far from what we call Star Trek theology. You know Star Trek theology, right? You give your life to Jesus, and then you just kind of pray that prayer like they would pray to Scotty. Beam me up, Scotty, right? Get me out of here. Get me out of this place that I don't want to be that's not easy for me to live out my faith. See, Jesus calls those in Pergamum not to be beamed up or or taken away, He uses not peroikeo, but katoikeo. In 1896, uh, Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem entitled Mulholland's Contract. In it, a man named Mulholland is a cattleman on a cattle boat, and there's a great storm at sea. It prompts the cattle to stampede and to trample everything in their sight. And so Mulholland makes a deal with God. The deal read, and and by terms of the contract, as I have read the same, if God got me to port, then I would exalt his name, and I would praise his holy majesty until further orders came. 
Anybody ever prayed a prayer like that? God, if you get me out of this jam, then I will. And Mulholland's life was saved. He was about to quit the cattle boat industry and to preach the gospel until God's word came to him. I never puts on my ministers no more than they can bear. So you go back to the cattle boats and preach my gospel there. That's the same word that the risen Jesus is telling the church in Pergamum. I know you want to get out of there because it's not easy to live out your faith. But I've called you to remain there. I've called you to make that your settled permanent residence. That's the message to the church in Pergamum, who did not renounce their faith in Jesus, not even the days of Antipas. Jesus says, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Do you remember the story of Balaam in the Hebrew scriptures? Anybody? No, a couple of us, yes. Balaam is a good one. It's my favorite. Uh, my favorite part of the story is when Balaam is on his donkey. Is this ringing a bell? He's on his donkey, and there's an angel that's stopping he and his donkey in their tracks, right? But Balaam can't see the angel, and so the donkey miraculously tells Balaam about it. Now, it's very rare for us to know what ancient prophets look like, but I think we have a picture here. There it is. That's right. <laughs> That's Balaam and his donkey. Now, the reference here in this story that John is making, that the risen Jesus is making back to Balaam, isn't when Balaam's donkey spoke the word of truth to him. It's when Balaam taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food sacrificed to idols, and they committed sexual immorality. Likewise, Jesus says, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, Jesus makes this parallel. He says, remember Balaam? Remember what Balaam taught Balak to entice the Israelites with? That's happening in your city as well. He's making this connection. The Nicolaitans are teaching the same things that Balaam once did. Repent, therefore, Jesus says. Change your mind, turn around, make a U-turn. Otherwise, I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father God, your word is truth. All flesh is like grass, and the glory of man is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word will remain forever. And so, Father, in our time together this morning, would you continue to open our eyes and ears to your truth? Would you soften our hearts to the word you would have for us this day. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, Bill Creasy's advice on understanding Revelation implies proper interpretation of all the images and the illustrations, all the different metaphors and the meetings. There's hidden manna, 
There's a white stone. There are so many different images and illustrations in just these six verses. We could go all afternoon. But I know you want to get to brunch, so I'll make this quick. Perhaps the thing that's most jarring to our ears is Jesus' reference to the throne of Satan. Now, Ephesus was known for its politics, Smyrna was known for its commerce, and Pergamum was known for its religion. But did you catch how Jesus defines their religious impulse? A throne of Satan. Now, why would he put it so strongly? Great philosopher Dallas Willard once put it this way. He said, we live at the mercy of our ideas. And Pergamum was filled with ideas, filled with a library, 200,000 volumes, all copied by hand. They loved ideas. They loved debating truth. We live at the mercy of our ideas. Now, geographers would want us to know that Pergamum was on level ground, but it was at the base of a massive mountain, right? Um, And that massive mountain resembled a seat or a throne. It would be like living in everyone's favorite vacation destination, Rancho Cucamonga. (laughs) On level ground, right, but looking up at massive mountains behind the town. And on top of those mountains were countless shrines and altars and temples, and chief among them were temples to Caesar and the pagan god Asclepios. Now, both of them were referred to as the Savior, which should be problematic to followers of Jesus. Would you agree? But the temple of Asclepios took it even further. It was thought to have magical powers in its chambers, whereby those who were sick would spend the night in the pitch-black chambers of the temple of Asclepios to hopefully be touched and thereby miraculously healed by one of the countless snakes that were slithering around. This is true. It sounds like it's straight out of an Indiana Jones movie. I think I would just rather stay sick. Anybody else? (laughs) Now, the symbol of Asclepios is very well known to us. Just Thursday, I saw that very symbol on the cover of a Christian book about God's divine healing. And I wondered whether the publisher knew they were featuring a pagan symbol implicated as part of the throne of Satan. And yet we see that symbol everywhere. The rod of Asclepios, it's called, with the serpent around it. And yet to Jesus, that serpent and the serpents filling that temple were a reminder of the tempter, of the evil one. The one who diverts promises of healing from him. The one who asks misleading questions and implants ideas that draw people not toward God, but away from God. See, in these verses, we're reminded, Asclepios does not bring hope and healing and wholeness. Jesus does. In these verses, we're reminded that Caesar is not the Savior. Jesus is. Theologian Abraham Kuyper once put it this way. He said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. Mine, Jesus says, which even includes Pergamum. Despite its countless shrines and its altars and its temples, despite its 200,000 volume library, 
Despite its religious fervor, its engagement ideas, its love of the search for truth, Jesus will say it plainly, Pergamum is mine. And yet, at the same time, he will tell those living there, you live in a location of lies. And you have fallen victim to the deceiver. Remember, in the Gospels, that's how Jesus talks about Satan, talks about the evil one. And, and some of us might envision the idea of the devil that we've seen from Hollywood, right? A little cartoon guy with a pitchfork and a tail and horns on his head. And then when we live with that idea for a little while about that's the evil one that is described in the scriptures, it's easier for us to kind of shrug our shoulders and say, doesn't really sound like something I should be worried about. But that's not how the scriptures describe the evil one. Jesus says this in John 8. He says, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says that there's a tempter, there's an evil one, there is a deceiver who is constantly telling lies and trying to divert God's people, trying to deceive God's people from the truth. It happens very early on in the scriptures. The tempter, the deceiver, in the form of a snake, asks these questions of Adam and Eve, trying to draw division and deception between God's people and their creator. Now, knowing all this helps us understand one other kind of awkward image that we read a few moments ago. Jesus tells us these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He says, I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What exactly is going on here? Remember what Bill Creasy said. Before we can understand Revelation, the 66th book in the canon, we have to understand the first 65. Remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates between the soul and the spirit, the joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The reformers of the 16th century would say that scripture tells us about this double-edged sword as a reminder of not only the Christian scriptures, but the Hebrew scriptures. That's both of the edges that we should allow to divide between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Ephesians 6 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Isaiah 4.9, the prophet even says, He has made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. And in Matthew 10, Jesus echoes this imagery. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Here's the point. Every Christmas we gather around and we love to sing those Christmas carols about Jesus being meek and mild. But Jesus is not only meek and mild, he's got a sword. On one side are those who see Caesar as their savior, who see Asclepios as their healer. And on the other side are those of us who would seek to hold high this Jesus. The one who not only crosses to the other side of the lake to bring hope and healing and wholeness, but the one who came down from the heights of of heaven for our rescue, for our redemption. And so in another way, this sword of Jesus is like a scalpel that he will use for our surgery. Think about it. There is a reason 
that we haven't immediately been beamed up and away the minute we gave our lives to Jesus. Because we too are called to live out our lives of faith here. Just like that man in Mark 5, what does he say? I want to go with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you stay right here. Just like the Christians in Pergamum, Jesus knows where they live. Just like Mulholland on his cattle ship, we are called to live out our faith here. But there's some bad news. We too live in a land full of lies. We live in what's been called a post-truth era. Anybody heard that phrase before? One uh, conservative think tank concluded that our world has what they call truth decay. It's a good one, isn't it? Apparently, you can have an unlimited library. You can have all the books in the world, but still miss the point. And that's tough for me to say, because buying books is like my spiritual gift. Not necessarily reading them, but I'm really good at buying them. <laughs> and I have them there on the shelf in case I'll need them. All the answers are there. But see, that's the error of Pergamum. That's the error of those living in Pergamum, in a land full of lies. And friends, that's the error of our information age as well. Perhaps you've heard the term information doubling. Uh, information doubling is used to describe how much data is being produced at a given time. In 1900, they thought that the amount of information and data and knowledge would double every 100 years. By 1945, it was down to every 25 years. So every 25 years, the amount of knowledge and data in the world is doubling. Some theorists believe that the volume of human data is now doubling every 12 hours. No wonder we get headaches all the time. And we're constantly trying to keep up, but we don't feel like we can. And yet, notice that I haven't used the word knowledge. I haven't used the word truth. That information doubling is not making us any wiser. Would you agree? We're just like Pergamum. With that massive library, with all the accumulated knowledge and information or data, but it wasn't making them any wiser. It wasn't revealing any truth. Information does not equal knowledge. We live in a land of lies. We live in a post-truth era. We have truth decay. And remember what Dallas Willard said, we live at the mercy of our ideas. We live at the mercy of our ideas. And so, metaphorically speaking, every day the pollution of this place damages our spiritual DNA. It leads to a deadly disease. And so, friends, we need that sword. We need that scalpel. We need a mandatory surgery that brings us hope and healing and wholeness, just like the man in Mark 5. We need that scalpel. We need that sword to divide between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. I want to say a quick thing to those of us who might not consider, us, consider themselves Christians. Um, because those of you who are hearing my words who aren't quite sure about the claims of Jesus might look around at some of the Christians around you and you might have convinced that these Christians think that they've got it all together. And Christians, let's be honest, sometimes we act that way, don't we? 
And so whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not this morning, I want you to hear what Jesus says to the church. I will come at you with the sword of my mouth. You live in a land of lies. You have been duped and deceived. See, the past two years especially have wreaked havoc on our lives in every way possible, but I'm convinced that one of the ways that it has wreaked havoc on our lives is on our spiritual disciplines, on our holy habits. We have been drawn into the news and the noise and the nonsense of who says what. Anybody else or just me? And by doing so, the world around us has pulled us into that news and noise and nonsense, and it has pulled us out of God's word. God has not left us alone. God has not helped, left us without a helper by his spirit, by which we can open his word and allow it to lead and to guide our lives by its truth. Not our truth, but its truth. In a post-truth era, in a world with truth decay, I want us to return to that sword. I want us to return to that scalpel. It doesn't sound very enjoyable, does it? And yet God's word will divide between that soul and spirit, that joint and marrow. Only God's word will bring us that hope and that healing and that wholeness. We'll cut out those little damaged DNA within us that the world has allowed us to absorb. I want us to return to that simple practice of wading into God's word. Many of us may engage a kind of devotional each day, and that's a wonderful place to start. But I want to invite you, next time you engage that devotional, to recognize and to remember that that devotional is written by someone who is engaging the scriptures. And so engage that devotional. But then read the passage they reference for yourself. And don't just read that one verse. Read the whole chapter. Start with that verse, but keep going. Because the way that they've written that devotional is by engaging the scriptures themselves. The very thing that we can do and the very thing that we're called to do. That devotional is not the scalpel. It is not the sword we need. It's, it's dumbed down a little bit. Its edges are blended. We need the actual sharpened sword of Jesus' mouth. Let's not look up or memorize one verse. Let's really soak in the scriptures. Soak in the story of God. Let's live in the truth of it. This week, I want to invite us to stop and to sit in the scriptures at least 10 minutes a day. Set a timer if you don't think you have the time. Give me 10 minutes every day, and I would be willing to bet that when that timer goes off, you will not want that time to end. C.S. Lewis once said that the best way to safeguard against bad literature is by proper enjoyment of good literature. And friends, we've got the very best literature right here. If you don't have one, let me know. I'd be honored to get you a beautifully leather-bound, large-print version that you can read in language that you can understand. We've got the best literature right here. The whole 66 books that will not only help us understand that last chapter but will open our eyes to God's presence, to God's guidance, to God's truth. Father, would you draw us into your word? Would you help us wade in your word to soak in the scriptures, in the story of God? Because God, we live in an information age. 
We are constantly trying to keep up, and we cannot do it. We are dizzy with all the data. But would you help us to see that your truth has been revealed through your written word, and even more so through the living word, Jesus? Would you open our eyes to that truth? Would you guide us by that truth? Would you help us to lie down on that operation table and to receive that sword, that scalpel that cuts out those pieces of damaged DNA that we might be and even more so become your people? That we might invite everyone to life in your family? We pray it all in the strong and the steady name of Jesus, the one who taught us to pray that prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.